I find it extremely important to advocate for mental health as well as financial health. Because if you don't have money, you can't afford therapy, you can't afford healthy food, you can't afford to do certain things that allow you to have options and being in a sound, rational, mental mindset, you can also make better financial decisions. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan, and mamas, today on the show, we're talking to Natalie Torres-Haddad, two times TEDx speaker, host of the bilingual podcast, Financially Savvy in 20 Minutes, and a financial literacy and mental health advocate. There are so many reasons I'm excited to have Natalie on the show and so many things we could talk about, from how she makes financial literacy fun with dance and art to her success with real estate investing. But today, we're going to dive into how financial health and mental health go hand in hand and how you can best take care of yourself on all fronts. As always, stick around to the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this conversation with Natalie, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash 104 for the complete show notes. That's also where you'll be able to download your free Healthy Money Mindset Workbook, so be sure to check it out. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Natalie, welcome to the Smart Money Mamas show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am so excited to have you here. I watched your talk from the Economy Conference and just absolutely loved the work that you're doing. So can you tell everybody a little bit about who you are? Yes, absolutely. I am a mama of fur, fur dogs, you could say. <laughs> but for me, it's been a, a wonderful journey being a part of the personal finance space. I'm Natalie Torres Haddad. People know me as Financially Savvy Latina. I am an author of now five books, Financially Savvy in 20 Minutes is a series. My podcast is also called Financially Savvy in 20 Minutes, and most of my content is bilingual. For me, it's been able to not only share some of the tidbits and things that I've learned along my experience, but also being able to have people get comfortable with speaking about their money. And so especially when it comes to mental health, when our financial health, if it's not, they're both correlated, right? So if one is off, the other one is going to suffer as well. Economy was the conference that I spoke. That was the last live event that I spoke at uh, last year in March. For me, it's being able to teach this. And I usually, pre-pandemic, would travel to all universities, engineering firms, companies all over the country, and being able to teach them not only financial literacy, but in a fun way with some dance moves, with some not only worksheets and things that help make it fun for them, because the truth is most people hate talking about finances. My degrees are in finance and international business, but for me, I still find it overwhelming. So we have to make it fun. If it's not going to be fun, we're not going to want to learn it. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Could you tell us a little bit about the intersection of mental health and financial health? And I know that from your story, you have an instance where those really fed off each other. Can you tell us what happened there? I'm not a mental health professional, but I've worked with a lot of many because one, I still have a therapist, which I love. It's a lifesaver all the time, but it's definitely a stigma. In our culture, we don't really talk about mental health being a priority. We always say our family comes first, especially moms. You hear that all the time, like, my family comes first. But the truth is you should come first because the mental, if you're not mentally well, if you're not physically well, you can't take care of others, right? And for me, I struggled with depression as well because after graduating from grad school, as well as my undergrad, I graduated with a lot of debt. I see that happening, unfortunately, too often now where people are graduating with six-figure debt and let alone trying to start a new life or balanced life is overwhelming. And a lot of people feel ashamed. I know I did. For me, I find it extremely important to advocate for mental health as well as financial health. Because if you don't have money, you can't afford therapy, you can't afford you know, healthy food, you can't afford to do certain things that 
allow you to have options and being in a sound, rational, mental mindset, um, you can also make better financial decisions. I always tell people, I call them my five Ds. So it's debt. Debt can definitely kill you. <laughs> debt, death, disease, divorce, and any doubts that you might have. So all of those things can really affect your finances. And so when it comes to mental health, it's being understanding how you're feeling at that state. If you're going to be shopping, people call it retail therapy. It's not true. <laughs> it's not, it's like, you're probably avoiding something that you need to be facing, right? When those two areas are as balanced as they can be, then you can make better financial decisions. And I think for moms particularly, that's a really important topic that many people aren't talking about it because they see money and mental as mental health as a taboo, which shouldn't be. You graduated from college. And what was your family support at that point? Like, did you have help understanding what your student loans are about or even how to talk about them? I was really fortunate. My parents are extremely supportive in every possible way. But I am a first-generation college student. I'm also an immigrant. That was something I had to navigate on my own. I did get a job right after college, but I was ashamed because I had so much debt. And I was the type of student that, you know, I went to school full-time. I worked full-time. I even got scholarships. And I still graduated with debt. I didn't publicly share as much with my parents what my financial situation was because, you know, here I am, you know, with these two degrees in business that, you know, do, and I was getting paid well, but it was still hard to juggle all that and trying to figure out how to handle life. And most of my friends at the time, some of them didn't have debt at all because it was paid for that kind of thing. Some of them yeah. had debt. I had no idea. I didn't know who to talk to about this. And so I, I kind of bottled that up for many years eventually it got to me. I was now uh, at that point, I had just was going into my second year of grad school. I was working full time. I had a full time nonprofit that I was running with tons of board oh members and we had a hundred volunteers. Yeah. Just want to tell people, and my first book was in the process of getting done. Mental health really struck hard. And because of that, I was forced to not only take time off, I had to literally quit, you know, stop working and doing everything that I was so used to doing. And it took a real toll because my entire family, including my friends, were shocked. And what I mean by that, they always tell me, you're the least likely person we think would have a mental breakdown. And when I take that as a compliment, this is something we do need to change in the conversation because if people don't understand that it can happen to anyone, we assume it's going to be that they brought it upon themselves. And I'm like, that's not true. One of my best friends is a therapist. And she said, and she's been a therapist for 20 years now. And she goes, after your breakdown or what I saw you went through, she started to see her her field in a very different light because I was always a positive person, pretty healthy and all these things that I was a marathoner and all these things that I really took the time to take care of myself. But because of that, that financial strain I was dealing with, the recession had just hit as well. This was back in 2008. It felt like everything was crashing down and I was a first time homeowner by myself. And for women, oh we goodness. don't hear that as often. <laughs> And I thought, I'm losing my home. I'm losing. And especially when I was seeing people that were seasoned investors were losing everything during that time, that built a lot of anxiety. Even when I talk about it now, it sounds like I could talk about it easily, but it took me eight <laughs> years to publicly say that this happened to me. Most of my family and friends didn't know what had occurred because I was actually even, I voluntarily put, was put into a, um, an acute psychiatric hospital. So I was there for about 36 hours. I was crying a lot. I craved sugars. Like I normally don't drink coffee or have, you know, sugars. I wasn't yeah. sleeping. I was having a lot of insomnia. I remember crying hysterically at ran random times by myself. I was just really, really in a dark place, depressed. And I never really knew how to handle that. And so at that point too, I'd never been to therapy. Now, mind you, I'm in my late 20s. 
within our cultures too, it's not just Americans, but Latino cultures and, and most cultures, we don't really talk about mental health as seeking therapy. When all that happened, I went full force and my parents were supportive and says like, whatever you need, we'll help you with. I ended up moving back with them and my, my boyfriend, who's now my husband, stayed at our condo, which I owned at the time. I basically kind of went back to being a kid, being at home, doing yoga, painting, breathing, eating well, like all these, when I meant breathing mental, like a breathing exercise, <laughs> which is good for exercise, I mean, for mental health. And so it was a focus on myself 24-7. I know not everyone has that privilege, but it's something you have to also do daily. And so for the first couple of years, I was like religiously setting boundaries and moms need that. They need to set boundaries because they want to please everyone. That was a big change for me. So as you healed, and first of all, I'm so glad you had that privilege and space to recover. And I know that those breakdown periods are so, so difficult. As you were ready to kind of come back out and go back to work and, and go back to, I don't know if you went back to school, but what were some of those boundaries that you set? And what did you learn specifically about how you were going to manage your finances? Sometimes I don't know when I talk about this, if I'm going to cry or if I'm just going to smile through it. But when I love speaking with you, because I, I know you, you listen to your audience, right? So you know that we all go through some difficult things. Sometimes I cry a little bit because it makes me think back of where I was and, and what I had to endure and overcome. But I did eventually go back to school. I, I actually quit my second year of grad school. I remember calling my friend crying because I had just finished my first year. And I, back then I had to fax it in and say I was quitting grad school. She knew how hard I worked because I actually worked for seven years before going back to grad school. So I was trying to fund myself to get through grad school. After I think about six months of self-care and just really focusing, I made the decision. I told my parents, I'm going to go back to grad school, finish that second year, take on another student loan, which I didn't want to do, but I did. I ended up going back to work eventually about a year later after grad school because I was like, I can't juggle both. I, I knew how hard it was. Yes. And luckily, my, um, one of my board members stepped up. She was an incredible president for our organization. So I had people that stepped in, and I was asking for help, which for sometimes it's hard yeah. for us to do. I had to delegate a lot of work. I had to ask for a lot of it. And going back was extremely difficult because now all of a sudden, the people that did know that I had a mental breakdown, some of my closest colleagues and, and people I worked with, even my family members, I was constantly being, I felt like I was being watched because they were afraid that something might trigger, that I might go back to that. Even today, this has now been more than 10 years since that episode. I have that conversation consistent with my husband, my parents, my family members about, they're like, you know, do you ever feel like you can never go back to that state? And I go, for me, no, because now I know what to look out for. Meaning if I'm having insomnia or if I'm feeling depressed. And I know my symptoms are, everyone's different when you deal with depression. I think people sometimes assume depression means you're just sad all the time. And that's not true. It's sometimes you're easily yeah. irritable. Maybe you're crying in silence by yourself somewhere. And you didn't, you're not really sure why you're crying out of the blue, right? Especially yeah. um, when you're grieving, when you're mourning, when you're dealing with a lot of debt. I've had grown women after conferences come up to me and I'm grown, meaning <laughs> they're like in their seventies or something. They come up to me and they'll hug me and they say, they went through something similar and they've never shared that with anybody. And I think it's important to start talking about what our mental health really does to all of our decisions, especially our financial decisions. Going back to work was, was probably one of the most difficult things because I was constantly watching what I needed to do to have those boundaries for myself. I was afraid that I would make a mistake and go back to that mental breakdown. But with through therapy, through the accountability and through my friends too, having a good circle of not just friends, like close friends, but colleagues that 
want to see you succeed because then they'll check in on you and they'll see what you need. And so I always tell people, check in on your strongest friend because that's something I always got. Everyone's like, you were like my strongest friend. You were you were the person that would make me, you know, I was very positive. I still am, but the motivator, you could say, and they would never suspect that, that I was sad. And I go, that's, that's, this is what we need to change because sometimes the strongest people that need that support. So Absolutely. I try to do the same and check in with my girlfriends. I'm like, hey, I know you're a super mama, but how are you doing? <laughs> really? How are you doing? <laughs> do you have any like morning routines, evening routines, things that you've kept in your schedule? Absolutely. Um, funny how we're talking here. Um, I have my journal. Every morning I journal, even if it's just like a minute, I try to write down at least five things that I'm grateful for. That really does help. And it sounds kind of cheesy, but sometimes it's hard to find what you're grateful for because you had a rough day or rough week. Last week, I I attended another funeral and I'm going through some of that. But, you know, sometimes waking up saying, I'm just thankful for this hot tea or this hot coffee. I'm thankful for my health. I'm thankful for my family's health. You know, those those are the things that I even if I'm doing that every single day makes a difference. I try not to have too much caffeine in the morning. One cup of tea or coffee is more than enough. And eating it starting, it sounds like what we hear as a kid. We need to start a healthy breakfast because that really just sets the rest of the tone for the day. Whether if you're going to eat fast food or not healthy in the afternoon, at least you know you're starting the day right. Those are the things I keep and I meditate every single day, whether it's in the morning or in the evening. But I need to keep that uh, mental straight (laughs) what what you can. And then my therapist at least once a week. Um, depending depending how much you need it so yes (laughs) I swear it's like at least three quarters of our episode someone's like go to therapy (laughs) therapy is great I just got a message this morning on on Instagram with someone that attended a panel I was on yesterday and she was like thank you so much for sharing your story because I just started therapy and I didn't know how to tell my parents and I'm going to tell them I'm like awesome this is why we need to talk about therapy There's also, Natalie, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I was talking to a friend recently about how we hear these voices and people like you and me who are like, therapy is great. Go to therapy. It's going to make your life better. But there also should be that reminder that like therapy isn't great the first like couple months when it's really, really hard. I think we need to acknowledge that too, that we're going to do difficult work and have to talk about hard things, especially at the beginning. And therapy isn't always beautiful every week. You just said it. Yesterday, I was like, like trying to keep my head straight because I'm like dealing with the morning of a loss. And I tell people therapy, finding your therapist is like dating. The first person might not work out. Uh, the second, you might not feel as comfortable to talk to. So I tell people, try it out more than once. It, it's like going to the gym, right? You're the first time you start working out, you're like, this sucks. <laughs> or you're not feeling it. Or maybe you're training with someone and you're just not feeling the vibe. So try out different people. You'll find that person that you you feel completely comfortable and honest with, that you can be honest with. For me, I was lucky I heard another friend who was going to therapy. And she's like, try different people out because, you know, sometimes there's one that you just don't feel comfortable or, and especially for black and brown communities, this is the need where we need more therapists in that field because it's easier to talk about our own circumstances, knowing that our therapist understands that we go through yeah. different different challenges. And so I had one therapist that I was with for a few months, but I, I, it was hard to open up for certain reasons. And, and later on, when I was addressed to a, a female therapist, she wasn't a woman of color, but she understood so much more. And I'm like, oh my God, what a difference having a male therapist with her. And then I had another therapist who was a, a woman of color. And all of a sudden I'm like, things that I was being shamed or judged I didn't have that with them. So it's kind of like dating. You'll find the right therapist and work with yourself and take the time to figure out there's some weeks that's going to suck because you have to open up about certain things. 
And there's some days that you're just going to feel, I always feel wonderful afterward though. I'll tell you that. It feels like a weight off my shoulder. I think that that's, that the end result is so, so worth it. And thanks, such a good reminder for like doing the shopping around. And I know that when you're in a period, or at least in my experience, when you're in a period of depression or high anxiety, doing that, doing the work that it takes to go out and find somebody and try different therapists, it feels very overwhelming. So I think it's another opportunity to talk to your friends, see if they have someone they would recommend or ask for help with some of that stuff. It can be a huge benefit as well. And if you don't have money, I'm all about being frugal too. Like at that time when I had lost my job and school, I didn't have insurance. I always tell people, look in your city, there's free therapy, there's group therapy, there's now there's online groups that are free as well. And just kind of see what your insurance does cover or doesn't. But I don't want anyone to think I just can't afford therapy. Well, like there's there's definitely different outlets out there. And sometimes there's foundations that will pay for your therapy. So look in depending where you are in the country. This is there is a need and and, and people can afford it. We can figure out a way to make sure you do. <laughs> So Natalie, you'd mentioned feeling some shame around your student loan debt. And so as you went back to school, you took out another loan and then got your job. What was your plan for paying off that debt? How did you handle it? I had to make that commitment to myself of like, okay, I'm taking this out. My goal will be to start paying it as soon as I graduate and if possible earlier, right? So I just didn't want to have to incur any of this interest. I was very disciplined and I was actually very open after grad school, undergrad, it was like I was dealing with it by myself. But after grad school mm-hmm. and after my breakdown, I, you know, I had to be really honest with my friends and be like, hey, I can't afford to take this trip right now because I'm paying down this debt. Or, hey, I, I can't afford to do that right now because I'm focusing on this. You know, it was about $40,000 of debt. Mm-hmm. At that point, too, whoever's listening to this, there's people that go back to school at different ages, right? I, I was um, 29 when I went back to grad school. You know, you're amongst other people that might be starting families or, or, or aren't, you know, they're single and having fun and that kind of fun stuff. So you, you understand that your financial values are different. I was a little bit more open about where I was financially and be like, hey, I can't afford to do this. And, and it was helpful because then one, I felt they were a little bit more compassionate towards me. They were a lot more helpful. And sometimes it's like as little as I look back and I think about the potlucks that some of my friends would be like, oh, I know you're studying. I know you're working. You're going to grad school. And here's like some food. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't have to worry about dinner tonight. Like it was a big deal. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. being able to tackle my debt after college was being open to those people that I could. I remember telling my parents, like, I can't afford to do this. Even my husband and I got married, I think about two years after I graduated. We were straight honest with my parents and his family about like, this is what we can and can't afford for a wedding because him and I rather pay off our debt quicker than to be splurging on a wedding, especially in our cultures, like a big wedding. And, and I'm like, oh, a lot of them didn't deal with student debt. Like him and I both went to grad school. So we had to make those decisions, but we had to also have the courage to be open about it. Be like, hey, we can't afford that because not everyone's in the same boat. And But I think that's something that really helped me to pay it quickly. I even actually saw it as a, a require. Obviously, it's every month you have to make pay a bin minimum, but I paid more than that because I wanted to make sure it was paid off quickly. And at the same time, I was saving a little bit too, because it always that peace of mind knowing that if I lose my job again tomorrow, <laughs> like it happened before, a lot of people going through a recession right now, losing their jobs, knowing that you have a little emergency fund, some cushion really makes a difference because you're like, well, at least I can defer my payments or figure out a way to deal with those student loans. A lot of people don't understand that student loans are different than credit card debt, where the student loans, depending on who your loan is with, you have different options of deferring it, meaning you don't have to pay it right away. Or, you know, maybe restructuring it to help you pay off 
your other debt, which makes your credit score drop and all these things that, that come with it. I learned a lot about my debt, but I learned that I could pay it off quickly and I did. And it takes time. It's not an overnight thing. Some people, it takes years. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing so much of your story. I want to talk about the specifics of your personal money management system. But before we do, let's take a quick moment to hear from our partners who help make the Smart Money Mama show possible. Did you know the banks make over $35 billion, with a B, dollars a year from fees? Overdraft fees, maintenance fees, ATM fees. The average American pays over $100 a year in bank fees, but not when they use Chime. I'll be honest, I'm a little obsessed with our Chime accounts. The Chime app has no hidden fees, has over 38,000 fee-free ATMs, helps you get paid two days earlier with direct deposit, and helps you grow your savings with an optional high-yield savings account. And that's just some of the benefits. I love that every time I swipe my Chime debit card, I get an instant notification on my phone with a cute little emoji telling me how much was spent and how much is left in my account. It makes staying aware of our spending so much easier. Head to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Chime and make the switch today to a bank account that has your back. Chime is a financial technology company. Banking services provided by the Bancorp Bank or Stride Bank NA, members FDIC. Natalie, I'm curious, what is your personal budgeting and money management system? Well, I call it a date with myself. I tell people, schedule a date with yourself. I know people say, oh, you know, they go to a spa or something, but date with yourself should be, if not once a week, at least once a month. So this is a time when you're paying your bills, when you're looking at your income, your expenses. And I make it a very spa-like environment. People think I'm joking. And I don't know if you, you said you saw the economy conference. I told people, I'm like, hey, I can guarantee you're going to love paying your bills. And they all thought it was crazy. Every conference I tell them that, they think I'm crazy. But when I walk them through, it's part of a little workshop, is creating this spa-like environment. So my routine is I know exactly on the 10th and the 18th, no, sorry, 10th and the 28th is when I sit down and pay my bills. and just make sure my income and everything is, is steady. And then I actually have my tea. I have my candle. I have some essence. I even have some really chill music, classical music. And no caffeine. And people hate that when I say that, but your body already has so much natural adrenaline because we get nervous or we're like, oh, we have to pay all these bills. So you want to be in a calm, like environment, right? And then for me, I always eat before I pay my bills because I get hangry. <laughs> or I get like, oh, like, you know, paranoid. So um, I have yeah. this meal, you know, that kind of thing. And then I'm very old school where I have to write some of these things down. A lot of, all my bills are mostly paid online, but I still get everything paper format. And I recommend people to do that, especially for your bank statements and credit card statements. A lot of people like to disagree with me on that, but the reason why it's helpful is because most of us are so bombarded with so much spam emails and whatever. We think we've paid it or we overlooked it, but when you have it in paper format and you're going through each line item and you can really see where there might be discrepancies or you need to, you know, make sure, Oh, I need to cut back on certain things. So that's kind of the routine. And then the best part, once I'm done, and I, I schedule a block, like an hour in the beginning, depending on how long it takes people to pay bills, especially if you have multiple properties and everything. I always do a treat myself afterwards, a bath. For me, if I could take a bath after, awesome. Or treat myself to a little ice cream or something that just something that I only do when I pay my bills. It creates this accomplishment, a pat on the back. And I put my phone away during that entire time. People hate that because they're like, well, my calculator's on my phone. I'm like, get a calculator separate. Because with your phone, you're mm -hmm. going to get distracted or want to go on social media, whatever. You make this process as quick as possible. It's painless and you enjoy it more. Kind of like who doesn't like going to a spa? So um, whatever <laughs> makes you happy, do it while you're paying your bills. <laughs> I absolutely love that routine, the date with yourself. That's fantastic. 
switching gears for a second, Natalie, you talk about the importance of learning about money being fun and how we just don't absorb things that are boring and not fun. And so how do you make learning about finance fun? I try to figure out different ways that I enjoy. I, I talk to some of my friends who are artists and there's always a stigma or stereotype that people say, well, artists don't do well with money. And I'm like, well, it's not necessarily. It's because maybe they don't find it fun. One of my friends, she likes painting when she's doing her bills. Or So for me, I always tell people, I love to dance. So I teach people a few dance moves that helps them kind of get out of that funk because we get so jaded into like, oh, I have to pay all these bills or why did I overspend? Well, you need some kind of movement, one that'll relax your body and just kind of makes you feel a little happy. And it censors you. You're like, okay, I'm here. <laughs> finding ways to make it fun for you and for your kids. So I'm actually finishing up a game. And for us, it's like like a bingo, you can say. But when you find ways to make learning about money fun, then you all of a sudden open another Pandora's box. You're like, oh, I never knew I could do that with my property. I never knew that I can pay off this bill quickly and then reinvest that into something else. What I always tell parents too, I think this is one of the biggest things that many of us in our household, if you didn't talk about money, because they were told not to talk about money. We think of it as this like, not only taboo, but the shameful thing we shouldn't be or, or this frustrating pr- process. If you have little ones, have them sit with you when you're paying your bills. Like like I say, create that spa-like environment and bring your little one and be like, this is what a, a phone bill looks like. This is what utility bill looks like. This is how we pay or, you know, if you're paying with the check or whatever it might be, show them these little process and they, they start to realize like, oh, this is something we have to do. It's not a big deal. For many of us, when we go to college, the first time we look at a bill, we're like, why does this paper have so much power over me? And it's because it's the first time you're like paying your own bills, right? When children automatically start to see that, oh, mom's having a good time paying this and like, oh, and then even though we're like, let's say you get a big credit card bill and you're like, oh, I shouldn't have spent that much money, right? Or I spent way too much. This is what I've seen parents and I love it when they give me feedback and they say, you know what, having my kid right then and there, they can pick up on your facial expressions, right? They can pick up if you're stressed. But when they're like, you know what, here, we spent a little too much money, you know, going out. But you know what? Because we we, we spent money at this restaurant or at this blah, 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 we we gave support and help for these local businesses. And these people can pay, you know, pay for whatever food they need for their family. Always coming from a place of gratitude. Your children start to understand that and be like, you know what? Instead of maybe next month, we're not going to shop out, you know, going to eat as much. Let's use some of that money so we can save it because I know you guys want a good Christmas gift or whatever it might be having that conversation, having them be a part of that process allows them to just feel like, okay, this is something we have to do. It's like taking a bath every day or a shower. It may not be as fun, but we have to do it. The sooner the better and finding ways that make it fun for you. So if parents feel like, well, my kid likes to paint or draw, let's do that activity together and talk about money while we're doing it. Explain the process of making it fun. And for me, I've been doing more. I can't wait to get some of this choreography out because it's that being able to have that combination of the two. I didn't major in dance. I I almost had enough classes that I did, but I, I was a dancer for many years in elementary and high school. And through ballet, through modern dance, we're, we're learning eight counts. It's all math. So that's a way of kind of incorporating. So as parents, you find what makes you happy and then figure out what your kid makes you happy and then c- combine some of these financial terms and and theories that you can bounce off of each other. And, and you know, you learn from that and enjoy the process as you go along. And what about parents who maybe didn't start as early when their kids were little? I know you speak at schools on a regular basis, or at least when it's not COVID. For that age group, that kind of like 16 to 25, where they're almost going out into the world on their own, but they're they're still figuring it out. How do we teach them and talk to them about money? 
it's so funny. High school students are probably least excited <laughs> when you start <laughs> talking about it. You know, especially when you have conferences that are, you know, might be a little bit more fun or a little bit more animated. For me, I usually start them off with asking what they want. So a lot of them are like so ready to start the real world. So I'm like, okay, how many of you guys want a car? How many of you want a nice car? How many of you want to go to a different college or study abroad? I ask them, what is it they want, right? Because yes, as parents, we could say, hey, you got to pay your bills. You got to pay for your health insurance. <laughs> like that sounds horribly just fun. You know, not, not fun at all. There's yeah. just all this responsibility. So ask them what it is that they want. It's like having talking about vision boards. With these high school students, I usually start off with that. It's like walk them through, have them write down a few things like, what is it you want for yourself that's fun? You know, it's like, oh, I want to travel the world. Or I want to have my own business. I want to do more art, whatever it might be. And then what we do is I break it down with them and say, okay, perfect example. A student wanted to go to Italy, study abroad. And I said, I studied abroad. I know how expensive it can be, but I also know how you can manage it within your budget. So I ask, how much would the flight cost? How much would it cost for you to stay with the family or live on your own flat? How much money do you need to survive for that whole year if you don't want to work while you're there? When we break it down to the T, they'll be like, wow, it's only 5000 I thought it was going to be so much more. And then they're like, 5000 sounds like so much money, especially when you're in high school, right? And it is. And then I'm like, okay, now look at that 5000 You just basically did a budget to see how much it would cost. Now, how much per day for the next two years will you need to save to come up with that 5000 Sometimes when you break it down, they'll be like, oh, it's only $5 a day. Or that makes the difference. And that's not even talking about investing in some. It's just physically not using that $5 cash to buy snacks at the vending machine or using something on their app that you're like, oh, I should stop purchasing this stuff online. So for them, it starts to really trickle into their heads like, oh, that $1 can really trickle to thousands of dollars. With high school students particularly is find out what they want and show them that process. And for parents, senior, if, if your student is a junior, do this before they become senior. This is the number one thing parents fight with me and then they come back and they say, this is like brilliant. If you have a, a teenager and they want to go to college, right? I want you to do for a month, give them all your money that you would spend on whatever it is that month. And people are like, what? You want me to give my kid $5,000 because that covers the mortgage, the food, blah, 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 everything. And I said, yes, you're going to give them the cash right then and there. But hear me out. Before you move on, you say, okay, here's 5000 that covers everything that we pay for the month. I need 2000 for our mortgage. I need $500 for the groceries for the next two weeks. I need gas money. I need clothes, blah, blah, blah. So by the time you're done, the kid's probably left with like $500. And you're like, those $500 you have to hold on to because we're going to need that for the next three weeks. And the kids start to change. Within the second week, they're like, maybe we shouldn't go to the movies. Maybe we should do this because we can't afford because we'll, we're not going to have enough money. It really does allow the kid to understand that this is how it's going to be when they're out in the real world or in college having to pay for certain things. And for most parents, it's such an eye opener that they thought their kid knew how much they were spending on like their phone bill or their cell, right? And then once they start actually taking the cash, it's harder to depart from it. But then they really get the grasp like, okay, money doesn't just come easily without having to really figure out where it all goes. And where does investing come into this with this age group? Everyone has different strategies of, of doing. And so a lot of students don't know that they can, one, a lot of parents don't think about opening a, a savings account for their children, right? There's so many different programs. There's 529s, which allows them to be able to supply or come up with money for their students to eventually go to college, which a lot of it, great tax incentive, being tax-free. But with their student, if you haven't opened up a checking account, savings account, right, it's just letting them know that they can start saving a little money there. And obviously the 
the interest on it is practically nothing. <laughs> but if every 30 days when they sit down with you while you're paying your bills and say, okay, where can we put this money into a starting a, a, a fund for college or a trip or retirement account, it allows them to do. I just saw a really fun meme, which I wish I would have had when I was 15. As Latinas, we have this thing called quinceañeras, which is our you know 15th mm-hmm. party. It's like the de- debut that you come out. Instead of the parents say, we're going to spend all this money on a party, we're going to give you $15 every month or something to start putting towards a savings account. And then by the time you retire, you'll have a million dollars in the bank. To start teaching ten- teenagers that they can do the same and finding different, there's different apps now. Before we didn't have as much mm-hmm. leverage to be able to like, oh, I can have fun, fun with it. So there's different things that students can do. But parents, I think that's some way to start really kind of saying, I'll give you maybe $5, especially if you have an allowance for them use some of that allowance for them to start learning how to save and invest. Because for me, if I wouldn't have started saving, I wouldn't have been able to buy my first rental property at 24. I started saving when I was 16. It was really hard to, but when I'd go out to college after college and, you know, get drinks with friends, I'm like, if I get more than two drinks, I'm not going to be able to afford using that $20 for my savings account. So, you know, it's kind of having that mentality of like, you have to be disciplined and every little bit counts. All right, Natalie, let's tie back around just for the last couple minutes here to mental health. I know that the last year, last 13 months of the pandemic has been really, really difficult. So if you're someone who's listening who, you know, is a little overwhelmed or a little depressed, what are some ways we can stay on top of our finances and make sure that our finances don't add to that stress? Such an important thing to do is to reach out to your 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 close friends, right? So those that you feel will be supportive or family members. And let them know what your financial situation is. You know, maybe if you just recently lost your job or you know that you're going to be losing some income, just sharing that one alleviates kind of that you can get some of that shame and just feel kind of like you're not alone in it. Because you never know when you open up, usually they will open up too and say, oh my gosh, I'm going to do the same thing. So you feel less alone. And then you also have an accountability partner and say, you know what, maybe you haven't lost your job yet, but I want to save six months of my emergency fund, have enough of that. What if we keep each other in account every week and say, hey, have you saved towards that fund? And figuring out that every day is just one thing at a time, right? So sometimes we get so overwhelmed with the pandemic, with everything that's going on in the world, such difficult things that we're dealing with, that we forget that those little moments can really add up to feeling better about yourself and feeling better about your financial choices. So having an accountability partner, opening up to people what your situation is, and also ask if you are taking care if you have elderly parents or if you have you know older children ask how they're doing too because then you won't feel hopefully as worried and be like oh you know what they're set that's something a conversation i had to have with my parents i'm like hey is your will set up are all these things in place it's a weird com- and hard conversation to have but i was so thankful we did it because i knew that they were going to be okay or if they needed something i let them know that they're going to you know, we'll be able to take care of them sometimes we forget that just talking about it can get rid of some of that anxiety an overwhelming feeling. And and I think those steps alone, just having that accountability of what is it that you want to accomplish and have short-term and long-term goals. During a pandemic, we've been pivoting like crazy, right? Like every week might be different. (laughs) And like, it's different the way we invest, the way we think with our money, but say, okay, what's my short-term goal for now this next year? And what is still my long-term goal as far as retirement goes? Having two different funnels of, okay, I'm going to be investing still the way I would for the long-term and I'm still going to invest in this way for a short-term goal. And hitting those little goals can really help you stay on track instead of just saying, you know what, forget it. The end, the world is ending. That's not true, right? So figuring out how we can stay motivated too, because that can be really difficult during and challenging times. 
That's fantastic advice, especially the talking it out and being honest with people. I think we can get so caught in our own heads that that monster just builds and builds. And once we get out in the air, it's not as not as big a problem as we thought. So, Natalie, before we let you go, we have to have you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. The sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where we ask the magical hat to reveal something about you. Are you ready? Sure. What is the best book you've read in the last year? Ooh, actually, I'm looking at it right now. It's Create Your Own Calm. It's a journal for quieting anxiety. I forgot where I got it, but you read it, but you also kind of put in some of your thoughts while you're journaling at the same time. And I, I really love that it has like special quotes every day. So that's a fun, fun book I recommend. It's a short read too. That's fantastic. That sounds like a good one. I'll have to look it up. Natalie, where can people follow up with you and listen to your podcast and see the work you do? Our website is Financially Savvy in 20 Minutes. All our platforms, same name. Instagram, social media is Financially Savvy 20 Minutes and also Financially Savvy Latina. But yeah, looking forward to connect with more people and, and hopefully give them the, the extra help that they need as well. So thank you so much for having me on your show. <laughs> Thanks for so much for visiting. This was fantastic. See y'all. Mamas, Natalie's transparency about her journey and her joyous, positive energy about financial literacy is truly a gift. I so love talking to her and I hope you enjoyed hearing her story and insights. Be sure to check out her podcast, Financially Savvy, in 20 minutes in English or in Spanish, and keep an eye out for her upcoming children's book. As always, I've wrapped up my top three takeaways from this conversation with Natalie to bring into your own money life. One, money and mental health go hand in hand. A lot of us have shame around money, and when we're feeling depressed, managing our money gets even harder. Or on the flip side, when money is tough, when we've been laid off or we have a major expense or we're in a lot of debt, it can push many of us into feeling isolated, depressed, and anxious. We need to keep in mind that taking care of our money is a form of self-care. It is a way of protecting our own mental health. And that when we're feeling some mental health struggles, we need to understand that we're not going to make every perfect choice with money. We can try to be aware of it. But as someone who has struggled with depression and anxiety myself, I know how hard it is to stay on top of everything when you're feeling that struggle. And so we've talked about this on the podcast in the past, and Natalie had some great tips as well. But one of the things I'd keep in mind is have an emergency fund makes this process a little bit easier when you're feeling really down, when you're feeling like you're struggling, having some money to lean back on so that if you do do a little overspending or you have an emergency expense come up, you're able to cover it, you're able to take the break that you need. If you are someone who is feeling like you're just not doing it right, you haven't had all the success you need, you should understand money better, and you're feeling some shame about that, know that you're not alone. We're all learning on this journey. And if you just struggle to get on top of things, if this has been a year that has amplified your anxiety, amplified your depression over the past 12 months, you're also not alone. Which brings us very nicely to our next point, which is to find a support system. Both financial struggles and mental health struggles leave many of us feeling isolated, like we don't have someone we can trust who to talk to, or even the people in our lives that do love us and that we do trust, we don't want to bring them these issues, they're taboo topics. Fight against that taboo. Find people that you're willing to talk to that will listen to you and offer support. If you don't have friends or family members you can talk to, that is why we have communities like the Motivated Mama Society where you will find a large group of women who do talk about these taboo topics, who will work through the hard stuff right alongside you. Also, don't be afraid to ask for professional help. There are low-cost options for therapy, as Natalie mentioned. 
And while they can take a little while, as both Natalie and I talked about, to find the right person, it's worth it to have that support, to have somebody who can help you work through these difficult things like financial and mental health struggles. This can get better. This is not forever. And finding that support system can help you make those changes. And finally, number three, when we talk to kids about money, make it relaxed and fun. There is a reason that our financial literacy activity pack is a set of games to teach kids about money. If we want them to have a healthy growth money mindset, we need to talk to them about it in a way that doesn't feel overwhelming or stressful. We don't want them associating money with arguments or that stress. I loved that Natalie mentioned having the kids around while you pay the bills and as you do it, verbally processing some of your mindset shifts so that they can see that even when things are difficult, there are solutions and positive ways to think about money. That way, your kids learn that money isn't always easy, it's not always perfect, but it's just a thing that needs to be handled and it's not that source of stress or anxiety. You have the power to change your family's money mindset for generations. Don't be afraid to start the conversation. You've got this. Mamas, I want to thank Natalie again for coming on the show, sharing her story, and providing so many great ideas for making money fun. You can find links to her podcast and website, Financially Savvy in 20 Minutes, in the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash 104. I loved getting to hang with you today, and I'm cheering you on through every step of your journey. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time. 